Thank you to the mountain men and friends. Always enjoy that aspect of Christmas. I hope they do Christmas times of coming for us at some point because that, for me, is a big part of Christmas celebration at, at uh, Chili Bible. And um, I, I would say this, that very probably this is the only church that you will ever attend where you get to sing in Latin with the banjo. So um, if that's important to you, you've come to the right place. Uh, also, a couple other uh, quick announcements that I want to just make here. Uh, first of all, it, uh, I sent out a lot of invitations. I hope that I got one to everybody. But if I did not, or by any chance, get one to you, uh, in your bulletin, the top of the second page of announcements is a invitation to my house uh, on this next Sunday, the 18th. Uh, to come and eat fried turkey and uh, celebrate the holiday, uh, hillbilly style, um, at, uh, at the Horn House um, uh, from 2 to 6 uh, uh, p.m. Uh, next Sunday. So please do join us. Um, we do this every year. We love doing this. We love having uh, our church family come celebrate with us. Uh, it doesn't annoy the neighbors that badly uh, since part of them are also coming. So uh, <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, we'd love to have you, um, and uh, and and please uh, make plans to do that with us. Uh, looking forward to that. Also, um, we have a stack of these. These are Bibles uh, on that table right back there in the back, where underneath where our prayer request box is. If you do not have a good Bible in a modern translation, we are going to. Um, uh, one of the elders and I have made a commitment to uh, make sure that 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 situation doesn't continue. Uh, we would love to be able to put God's word into your hand, uh, and so we've got a stack of these. We'll have a bigger stack next week. Uh, we don't want anybody to not have God's word in a translation they can read and understand. So um, grab one, and if you like it, take it with you. Okay, it'll be our gift to you, and uh, we'll and you'll be blessed as you read it. Uh, best Bible to get is the one that you will read, after all, right? So, um, if you uh, if you have one available, uh, if you don't have one available, you know, or if the one you've got is in a translation with a lot of these and thous and uh, that kind of thing, and you just go, man, this is just totally incomprehensible. Pick up one of these, and uh, and you can take it home with you. Okay. Um, glad you're here this morning to worship Christ, the, uh, the once upon a time newborn king, but now the risen Savior. Uh, this morning, as part of the Advent season, celebrating Jesus' first coming, uh, we're going to be continuing looking at some of the major prophecies uh, surrounding what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. And last week, uh, we saw that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Moses made of a prophet like me who is going to reveal God because he's going to have like me spoken with him face to face. And Jesus is the greatest possible of the prophets. And he has not only spoken with God face to face uh, from all eternity past, he is, he is himself God the only begotten Son of God, uh, begotten before all ages from eternity past with the Father in heaven. And 
This week, we're going to be looking at who, how Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, as was predicted by David in Psalm 110. And by way of introduction to that, let me ask you a question. Uh, when you, if you are a parent and you have had teenage kids, raise your hand. Okay? Now, if you have not had teenage kids, but you have been a teenage kid, raise your hand. <laughs> All right. Now, one of the things that if you are a teenager or if you have raised teenagers, that they will say to you is uh, three words that, will, that echo throughout your house multiple times, and they start with the word you, and the last one is understand. Middle word is don't, right? You don't understand. You don't understand me, Dad. You don't understand what it's like to be 16 and hormonal like I am, right? Uh, Dad, Mom, you don't understand. How many of you said that when you were growing up? Be honest. Said that. Okay. How many of you now uh, have, have heard that from your kids? Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. To a certain extent, that's probably true because the, you know, the kids in culture today do not grow up even in the way that I did. And, they, and some of you, I didn't grow up the way that you did. We didn't all have the same parents. We didn't all grow up in the same way. Uh, and, and even with our own children, they don't all, we don't all have the same shared experiences. And so in a certain way, we don't understand. Now, let me ask another question. You don't have to raise your hand on this one. How many of you have ever said to God, you don't understand? You don't know what it's like? Or wished that somehow God would intervene directly in your circumstances, or that when you pray that you have felt like, no, God just doesn't understand what it's like to be in this? And what I want to tell you is, is that what the Scripture reveals to us through this prophecy about Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek is that we have a God who does understand, who has experienced life like we have experienced life, who has gone through all of the turmoil and struggle and frustration and pain and difficulty of life, and who does understand what it's like to be a human being in a difficult world and to deal with difficult people and to face suffering and betrayal and pain and sickness and even death. A God who does understand. And so if you have your Bible, I want you to go with me to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be in chapter 4 in verse 14, and then we're going to jump into chapter 5 a little later. But uh, chapter 4 and verse 14, uh, again, if you don't have a good Bible, grab one off the back table. and we'll, You'll have the same translation I got, and you'll be able to follow along. Okay, But either way, follow along in your Bibles as I read. Uh, chapter, chapter 4 of Hebrews in the New Testament, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, let me just back up here a second. Uh, The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish Christians, Hebrews, uh, who are under persecution. Their embrace of Jesus as the Messiah probably cut them off from membership in the synagogue, from their ability to worship in the temple. They may have been cut off from their families and communities uh, because to embrace Jesus was to, in the minds of a lot of uh, first century Jews as today, to turn away from your heritage and your family and everything that identified you as a Jew. Even though Jesus was a Jew, even though the first disciples were Jews, even though the Bible is written almost entirely, except for Luke and Acts, by Jews. It was still viewed as an act of repudiation to become a Christian follower of Jesus as Messiah. And then on top of that, as the church began to grow and to spread... And Christianity began to be identified as something distinct from Judaism. That was a problem because, and you could not count on the protection of the Roman government uh, from your Jewish neighbors and friends and family because Christianity was not recognized as a legal religion, whereas Judaism was. And so as long as Christianity was identified as a sect of Judaism, well, then that was okay. But as soon as it was identified as a new religion apart from Judaism, well, then you were in a legal problem. And so not only were you persecuted by your family and those members of your own, of your own people, but you were also persecuted and even imprisoned and killed by members of your imperial government. And the temptation for all these Hebrew Christians was to say, you know, I'm not sure if all this is worth it. I'm going to, um, I'm going to punt on this Christianity thing and go back to being Jew, just a Jew, because then I would regain the acceptance of my family and community and the ability to be at the temple again. And on top of that, the Romans will leave me alone. Which is why, as you read the book of Hebrews, there are several different severe warning passages against doing that, against leaving the faith uh, for something else. Uh, And so the writer is exhorting them over and over, don't go back. There's no life there. Don't go back. Jesus alone is the source of eternal life. And that's that's how this passage begins with an exhortation in verse 14 to hold fast our confession. In other words, the same one that he shares with the people he's writing to. Let us hold fast our confession. Why? Because when life seems like it's full of obstacles and problems, and when being a Christian does not seem to be working out for your blessing in quite the way you hoped or thought that it would, it's awfully tempting just to want to chuck the whole thing just like they wanted to do. And I'll I'll just leave all that aside, and I'll go back to the road I was on, because it was better than this. 
And instead of that, the writer of the Hebrews says, no, we need to remember that Jesus is our high priest. And he's not some ordinary fellow who, who claims to be interceding for us with God, someone who is just like you and I. No, he is a high priest who has passed through the heavens. What's that mean? Passed through the heavens, in, in a Jewish idea, there were three heavens. There was the atmosphere surrounding the earth, that was the first heaven. And then outer space where the planets and the stars and, and all, of, all of the heavenly bodies are, that's the second heaven. And then beyond that, outside of the space-time mass universe is the third heaven where God's presence dwells with the holy angels. And so when he says that Jesus is the one who has passed through the heavens, he means that Jesus, who is now currently in the presence of God. So in other words, you know, here's the thing. When you go to a priest and you talk to him, where is he standing? Next to you, which is located where? On earth. And you're hoping that somehow this guy's prayers get all the way up through the heavens to the presence of God. But he says, no, you have Jesus as your high priest, and he is the high priest who has passed through the heavens. So when we address Jesus, where is he standing? In the presence of God. Do our prayers get there? Yes. That is a safe assumption. <laughs> Why? Because he's already there. He hears them and he can address them and intercede for us directly with God. He's the priest who not only is God, he stands before God the Father in heaven, intercede for you directly. And on top of that, no matter what struggles and problems that you have experienced in life, or what you are currently dealing with, Jesus is not only your great high priest, one who's superior to every other person who might lay claim to that kind of a title. He's also a sympathetic priest. He's sympathetic because he knows what life is like down here. And you know, a lot of people think of God as sort of this remote removed, you know, watchmaker out there in the universe who kind of winds things up and lets it go on its own, uh, like that ratty song that Bette Midler sang years ago about God is watching us from a distance, right? You know, that horrible, horrible, terrible theology song, straight out of hell, that song. Okay, if you don't believe me, listen to it. All right, <laughs> um, not only is, is the music bad, the lyrics are awful because God is not watching us from a distance. The central truth of the New Testament is that God is not distant and removed, but God is a God of prayer who is personal, who not only is involved in his creation, but became part of his creation. In the past, Jesus Christ, God, the Son of God, became incarnate in Jesus Christ so that he could experience life just like we do. 
And you may, you know, not have ever really stopped to think about that, but, but that means that teenage Jesus probably had pimples. That when he got to be my age, he may have been losing a lot of his hair. You know, we see Jesus, you know, he's got kind of this lion mane hair, you know, and, you know, and all the art stuff that you see, right? We don't know that. He may have looked like a billiard ball at 33. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, um, he may have had rickets as a child and been bow-legged. A lot of people did and were. He may, have been, he may have had plague scars all over his body. A lot of people got sick and were scarred by the diseases that they got. He may have had a little girl that lived down the street thought he was cute. He experienced life just like we do. And he experienced all, the, all of the best that life has to offer, but also all of the worst. After he was born, yeah, he was worshipped by a choir of angels and some stinky shepherds. But he was laid in a feed trough. He spent his early life on the run from evil men. He was betrayed. He was rejected. He was impoverished. He was lonely. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was beaten, he was abused, he was tortured, he was murdered in public. He was also tempted by all the kinds of sin that we are tempted to give into, and he struggled against it successfully. Yet his struggle was different, not in kind from ours, because one of the things the Bible teaches us is that Jesus while he remained God during the days of his incarnation, he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. So he didn't, he didn't just kind of float through life above it all because, well, he's the son of God. No. His human nature ensured that he experienced life just like we do, and that when Jesus was tempted by sin, it was a real temptation. He was not playing with a net it was a real temptation. And since Jesus alone withstood the full force of, of temptation, he had to he had to fight. He knew exactly how strong temptation is. You know, we just a lot of times don't know how strong it really is because we give into it before it's really gotten bad. I want a cookie. There's cookies, you know, uh, right? Uh, you know, we hear that and we think, hmm, a, a cookie sounds good, right? Uh, and, you know, we're tempted by it and we, um, and, and our temptation gives birth to lust and then we, uh, our, our lust is conceived and gives birth to sin and we go eating a cookie, right? Um, well, I mean, that's kind of the process. Not, cookies aren't sinful. Don't, 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 don't go off on that, okay? Don't write me email. Um, by the way, if you have, uh, if you have sent me an email in the last six months and you haven't gotten a reply, I found out why I have a, a, an old email account that has been getting about 350 of my emails. 
uh, over the last uh, six months. Uh, so if you haven't re- uh, heard from me, that's the reason why, and I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But the, all that aside, Jesus experienced the full force of temptation. And, but beca- and, and though he was sinless in his response to it, he was tempted in every way just like we are. And it was a real temptation. And he suffered everything that the worst of human life has to, has to offer. And because of both his victory over sin and because of all of his suffering that he experienced, he can be a sympathetic priest. So he's not only high and great and exalted, he's also sympathetic, knowing what it's like to go through this life with all of its difficulty and pain and struggle and sin and death. He experienced it all. He witnessed all of the effects of sin in other people's lives. And he himself was tempted to sin, but resisted against it. And because of that, we get this exhortation in verse 16. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. This would be one that you ought to, like, get, if you're going to get a verse of Scripture tattooed somewhere on your body, this would be a good one to have on there, okay? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that phrase, the throne grace. You know, very often, even we as Christians think of God seated on his throne, exalted and high and lifted up, and we think of God's throne as a place of judgment. And if you ask even a lot of Christians, and I've done this so I know, Tell people, shut your eyes. In fact, let's do it right now. Shut your eyes. Now imagine that you are standing in the presence of God. And he appears before you like Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. High and exalted and the train of his robe fills the room. And you see the seraphim flying through the air. And they are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And at the sound of their voices, the room shakes. And you walk in to this room and you look up at God's face. What expression is on his face when he sees you? Open your eyes. Can't have you shut your eyes for too long. <laughs> Some of you will be asleep. Um, but if you ask a lot of people, what picture did you see? What, what expression is on the face of God? What they will use is a word like this, anger, disappointment, judgment, sadness. Not happy to see me. More of a, if there's anything, it's kind of a, oh, it's you. That is not the impression that this passage gives us that God thinks of us when he sees us. It's the throne, not of judgment. If you're a believer, it's not the throne of judgment. 
It's the throne of grace. It's the throne of grace. And so, whether you, whatever your need is, it's the throne of grace. He says, let us go with confidence before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. When do we need mercy? When we've done something we shouldn't. When do we need grace to help in time of need? When we're about to. <laughs> Whatever a situation is, either, God, I messed up huge this week, today, maybe on the way here. Now, I have never done this. <laughs> okay. But some of you probably had a fight with your spouse on the way to church. <laughs> okay. Now, again, I've never done that. Uh, Karen's laughing. Okay. Because <laughs> um, she knows. Okay. More than once that's happened, right? You're having a knockdown drag out in the car, in the garage. You know, as you're backing out the driveway, all the way here, you get out, you slam the car door, and you say to the next person that you see, Oh, good morning. How are you? <laughs> right? And then the whole time you're sitting in church, you're thinking, You are a hypocrite. <laughs> Here you sit, putting on your plastic face, making like everything is okay, and you know you're going another 13 rounds on the way home, <laughs> right? Okay? Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? And worse, as I've said before, if you knew everything about me that my wife knows about me or that God knows about me, for sure, you would not let me be your pastor, but that's okay, because if I knew everything about you that your spouse and that God knows about you, I wouldn't let you come. Okay? Here's the deal. We are all broken, sad, sinful, pathetic human beings. Because there's only two kinds of people in the world. Bad people and Jesus. Amen? And so... The writers of Hebrews is making, giving us tremendous reassurance and says, because Jesus is our great high priest, because he's a sympathetic priest who knows what it's like, we can come boldly into God's presence and receive grace to help us in time of need and mercy. We can receive God's forgiveness for all the times we messed up. It's the throne of grace. And we can walk boldly into God's presence. And not only is Jesus our sympathetic priest, he's also our chosen priest. I want you to read on here with me. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only one called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to him who said to him, 
you are my son. To get today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the writers of the Hebrews give us a little background in chapter 5 uh, here on how a person became a high priest. He first had to be chosen to be the high priest. And beyond that, his job was to act as a mediator between God and men, offering their gifts, which were acts of worship to God, as well as sacrifices, which were uh, how people came before God to deal with their sin. And normally speaking, the high priest was able to be quite gentle with people who came to offer either gifts or sacrifices because everybody knew that the high priest was the guy who had sinned right along with them. And so there was no way to be holier than thou. Let me explain how this worked. Uh, When the previous high priest died or left office for whatever reason, you had to appoint a new one, and he had to be from a specific family, had to descend from Aaron of the tribe of Levi, descended from Abraham. And you would find the new guy to be the high priest, and he would be chosen, and that choice would be reflective of God's will. And then what that guy would do is he had to show up at the temple or the tabernacle earlier on, And he had to offer a bull for sacrifice. But before he did, what he had to do was lay his hands on this animal's head and name publicly all of his sins. Now, this is not a practice we're going to institute for your pastors. Amen? All right? But that's what he had to do. He had to name in public all of his sins. And then he would slit that animal's throat and they would take some of the blood and they would put it on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot and on the earlobe of his right ear so that the feet which carried him in service in the, in the temple or the tabernacle and the hand which performed the work of God and the ear which heard people's confession would all be sanctified and covered by the blood of sacrifice. The blood that was sacrificed for his sin. And guess what? This was not a one-time deal. Every year on the Day of Atonement, you would have to sacrifice this very valuable animal. The most valuable animal among your herd was a bull, a young bull. And they would take the best one and they would sacrifice it for the high priest. And then they would take a goat, well, less valuable animal, to sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation. This guy was held to a high standard. And everybody knew that as the sins of the priest were named and that animal was sacrificed, then he would lay hands on the the goat, the sacrificial goat. And he would sacrifice that one for the sins of the people. And everybody knew, I can come to this high priest because he knows what it's like. And he's able to be gentle because he can't stand up and go, well, you know, I never did anything like that. I am not a sinner. No. The high priest had already had to make it clear to everybody that he was just as in need of sacrifice as everybody else. He had to be a gentle priest. And finally, the last requirement of the high priest was that 
he could not become high priest by his own decision, but only as a reflection of a special calling by God. So the writer of the Hebrews here in verse 5 and 6 makes it clear that even though Jesus didn't become our high priest because he, that even Jesus didn't go, you know, I think I'll become a high priest today. No. He became our high priest because he was appointed by the same person who said in Psalm 110, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, who said that? Well, God did. And he said it speaking prophetically through King David, and that probably needs a little bit of explanation. Uh, And you pick up a little bit of that explanation later on in Hebrews. Uh, You may not know it, but Psalm 110 is, I think, the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's, uh, it's a messianic psalm, and, it, and in it, David is looking forward to the day when one of his descendants, in accordance with the Davidic covenant, would be the Messiah, and who would not only therefore be a king, but would be a king-priest like Melchizedek. And before the Messiah came, God had made it very, very clear that no one was to attempt to be a king-priest. In fact, Saul tried it and lost his kingdom over it. King Uzziah tried it and got leprosy and lost his kingship over it. And so God had made it very, very clear there will be no king-priest except the Messiah, who will be a king-priest. And how did that happen? Well, when Jesus the Messiah came, he was and is the true son of David. But by his death, he made the final sacrifice that atoned for all sin, for all people, for all time. And so there was no longer a need for the priesthood of Aaron to continue. And the the Aaronic priesthood, from God's perspective, came to an end. And that meant that an older order of priest, the kind to which Melchizedek belonged, could be reactivated, the king priest. Now, those of you who are with us for the first half of Genesis probably remember Melchizedek. Uh, He was the king priest of Salem, which uh, which is a city that later became Jerusalem. And again, you're going to pick up a whole bunch of this later in Hebrews. Someday I'll preach through the whole book. Uh, But... He was the king priest of the city that later became Jerusalem. And Abraham offered him 10% of all that he had. And in Hebrew thought, you could never be greater than your father. And so Aaron, who descended from Levi, who was the great-grandson of Abraham, could never be greater than Abraham himself. And so if Abraham offered Melchizedek 10% of all he had, then the priesthood that that Melchizedek had was greater than the one that Aaron had many generations later, right? Make sense? All right. Um, And because of that, you know, Jesus is not eligible, by the way, to be a priest like Aaron. Why? He's from the wrong family. He's from the tribe of Judah. And 
the tribe of Judah is not eligible to be priests. You have to be a tribe from the tribe of Levi. You have to be from the from the Aaron's family within Levi, and Levi has to be descended from the right mother and the right father and all of that. And Jesus was not descended that way. But nevertheless, he is able to be chosen by God to be our high priest, our king priest, like Melchizedek. Because it's a different, now that Jesus has come, there are all kinds of different rules that apply. And so Jesus is not only a sympathetic priest, a priest specially chosen by God for the job, he's also a saving priest. And we want to look at that the last few minutes here that we have. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Remember how every priest offered up something as he began his priesthood? Every priest had to offer a sacrifice up to God. Well, Jesus wasn't a sinner, so he didn't need to offer up sacrifice to God for his own sin. But he nevertheless offered up to God something that was a sacrifice. And according to the text, it was prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. Well, when did that happen? Well, if you read Bible scholars that write on these things, what some of them will say, well, that's the Garden of Gethsemane. Others will say, no, it's the cross. You know what I think? Yes. <laughs> okay? Just like if someone asks me, do you want chocolate or vanilla? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, he cried out. He prayed to God in both places. And his prayer was answered. How do we know? Resurrection. Did God save him from death? You bet. He didn't stay dead. Resurrection proved that God saved Jesus from death. Jesus conquered death by God's Spirit. Why? Because of his reverence. That is, faced with a choice between obeying God and going to death, or disobeying God and being and being and escaping death for the short term, but being punished by death for sin. Jesus said, I'll obey God, though it costs me everything. Remember, the, the first Adam was given a command by God, and he disobeyed it and brought death to everyone. Second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was given a command by God to go to his death, and by so doing, he brought life everyone. And you may find verse 8, as you look at this text, really confusing. How could Jesus learn obedience? How does that happen? He's the Son of God. How does He learn anything? 
Well, here's what I think Hebrews is saying. Jesus was and is the only begotten Son of God. He possesses a fully divine nature and an eternal existence with the Father from all eternity past. And so there's no sense in which he needed to obey anyone. He's God, and everything exists that exists exists to obey him, not the other way around. But nevertheless, in his humility, the Son of God learns what it's like to obey God, even though it costs you your very life. He experiences all of life's challenges, even that one. So that no one could ever stand before God and say, you don't know what it's like. Really? I've not only been there, I know everything that it's like. I know what it's like to obey God in an experiential way. He became perfect in that sense. Uh, having experienced all of human life with all of its difficulties. And in that way, he became a perfect high priest who could perfectly relate to all of our experiences. Yet because of his perfect obedience to God, he became the perfect sacrifice and substitute who could offer eternal salvation to us and new life. And therefore, the text says, God designated him our king priest like Melchizedek, sympathetic because he has experienced it all from the inside. And his death in obedience to God brought salvation to all of us. Well, what do we do with this text? What does it matter that Jesus is our high priest, the one who was prophesied to be like Melchizedek, the king priest. Well, how does that relate to us? Well, there's a couple things I'd like to suggest to you as we close. Number one, hold fast to your confession. Just like the writer to the Hebrews told them, hold fast to our confession. Let me tell you, hold fast to our confession. I know, I know that it's tough sometimes to keep following Jesus. Sometimes our temptations get the better of us, and it seems like a long way home. Come all the way back to repentance and follow the Lord again. Other times, life just beats you down. You go through maybe a long illness and then death of a loved one. Or no matter what happens, you just it just seems like your job is one continual daily beating every single day. And you get up every single day and you go to it anyway and you try to be faithful, but you're not experiencing what feels like God's blessing by being there. Or maybe you can't get a job, and you wonder, where is God in all of this? Is he really out there? Is he really care about me? Guess what? This passage says, yes. Hold fast our confession. 
because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he loves you. And he's watching over you and protecting you and providing for you and longs for you to draw near to him. Hold fast to your confession. Number two, come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace. Whether your struggle is mercy that you need or whether you just need help, come boldly. Bold prayers get answered. Bold, specific prayers get bold, specific answers. Here's the thing. You know, you may need mercy today. You may be thinking like I have thought, well, I've messed up huge. And I can't come to God dragging that thing into his presence and say to him, uh, yeah, um, this is what I've been up to lately. Or maybe you have confessed the same cotton-picking thing 550,000 times, it feels like. And you go, surely I can't come to God with that again. I mean, it's only Tuesday, and I've already done this four times today. Bible says, come boldly into God's presence, knowing that you will receive mercy, knowing that God is a God of grace. Now, that doesn't mean you say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Party on, man, because I can go to the throne of grace anytime I need to. No. You are still coming before God. But you're able to come boldly, not on the basis of what you've done, but in spite of what you've done because of what Jesus has done. And say, God, you know what? I know you know what it's like. I know you know what it's like to fall into temptation, to sin, and in being angry or in lusting or in in being greedy or being idolatrous or being whatever. And guess what? I didn't succeed in withstanding the temptation. I gave into it again. Here it is. And I need mercy. Or maybe your need is not that. It's, I need help. God, I need help. I need a job. My spouse is dying. My child is lost without a Savior. And there's nothing I can do. I need help. Come boldly before the Lord and ask. The God who loves you sits on a throne of grace and where he keeps it on tap, ready for you to come and receive it. Well, let's go before the throne of grace together, shall we? God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is not, though he is your son, that he is not remote 
from us. We don't need somebody else to intercede on our behalf with you because we already have the best person for the job. We have Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, who has experienced everything that life has to offer, both good and bad, yet without sin. And he can be a sympathetic priest for us because he knows all the struggles and temptations and difficulties of life. He deals gently with us in grace. But because he has offered the final sacrifice of himself for our sins, we don't need to atone for it anymore. And we can come boldly before you knowing that you are going to offer forgiveness, mercy, grace. And that if we need help because you love us, you have bought us with the blood of your Son, and you can only, having done the most for us in that, do much more than the most and provide the help that you promise. So, Father, this morning I come boldly before you into your very throne and ask on behalf of these, your people, that you would grant them what they boldly ask for, whether that is forgiveness or whether that is another need. Father, I pray that your mercy would descend on us and on this church and on each one who is here. And Father, I thank you for this wonderful text that teaches us these things. In Jesus' name, amen.